text from the lectionary this morning in the gospel says that in those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. One version says it's within your grasp. So repent. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord Make his path straight. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I think if we are all honest uh, here in the room, there's not one of us that is really all that good at faith. Um, We're opening our heart to this almighty God who dwells probably more in mystery than he does in obviousness. He is God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and He is almighty and yet vulnerable in coming to us and loving us, and we have this dance between kind of knowing and not knowing so much. Sometimes I feel, in fact, I actually carry around, I have been for a while, this little bag of about 20 jigsaw puzzle pieces from a 500-piece puzzle. I don't carry the box around. I don't remember what the box actually was a picture of. But I have these little 20 things, and every once in a while I'll pull them out and look at them and say, okay, what is this thing? And I like to do that because I think that's a great illustration of our faith, that we know about God a little, but we don't have the box, and God can't be boxed. He's infinite. And then on some level, the best we have are bits and pieces that keep us both fascinated and a little freaked out. So the Latin phrase was fascinans et tremendum. <laughs> they said it. it means God is absolutely fascinatingly wonderful, but absolutely a freak out. Because he's, it's kind of like an eight-year-old boy looking at his dad, who both loves and is a little scared of. And there has to be that kind of engendered reaction in us, a little, not too grabby, just a little more open and willing to be grabbed by. So, in honest, I mean, Jesus said that, that we have pretty good faith if we have the faith of a child. And you know as well as I know, kids are not very good at much, <laughs> right, <laughs> except being kids. And uh, I, I really think that we should lower our expectations of how good we think we are at faith. And I think that we should be totally cool with being a little wobbly. And, uh, uh, I mean, I say that as one who gets paid to have faith. But I do look for things that that help me to be more consistent and a little less wobbly, a little less sketchy. Um, Things that I found that help me to be a little more loving and a little less selfish, a little more ethical, a little more aware of the pain that's around me in the world and with a commitment to mitigate as much as I know how or can that pain. Um, To be a little more actively trusting in God and for his kingdom to come. Prayer helps me with faith, so I do it. I uh, am part of a group of people called the Order of St. Anthony. There's about 50 of us who have committed to praying through the Book of Common Prayer, which is just this old book of prayers that, uh, and a rhythm of prayers that have been being prayed for millennia, but it's, it's, it's just parsed out quite nicely. Um, 
we're actually, after the first of the year, going to invite some sanctuarians to jump in with us and to pray with us. How wonderful would it be to have a community that actually prays intentionally together? And so, but I love that. I, I love uh, uh, prayer. It helps me with my faith. Coming to church helps me a lot. Um, and so I do even when I don't speak. And uh, I do, uh, I go to churches that I don't belong to necessarily. There's a church right next to where we live in, in Manhattan that's uh, it's called Trinity Church Wall Street, and that's an Episcopal church. But uh, the, every day at noon, they, they have a celebration of the Eucharist. So I'll sneak over there. I just, I love it. I love, I mean, I, I, it's a little dry for me, but I love the celebration of him and remembering the story and my place in that story. And, and somehow, it, it, I mean, it isn't that I'm trying to impress God or trying to be a religious good guy. It's just that I recognize that I'm that needy and I'm that bad at faith. I need that kind of stuff to go to church. Another surprising thing that, is, that I've found that is very helpful with faith is celebrating the Christian calendar. This is surprising to me. Uh, with the seasons, with the special days. You know what those special days are called. Historically, they were called holy days. Um, uh, we've kind of captured the concept of holy days in our culture. We call them what? Remember? Holidays. Holidays, actually holy days reconstructed in modern vernacular. So what do you do for your holiday? It's, it, it's a holy day, right? Um, we're all used to secular samplers of this, you know, seasons, holidays, whether you're talking about spring or summer or fall or winter, all of us are used to associating those seasons with certain kinds of activities. So when it's spring, we do certain kind of things. When it's summer, we do certain kinds of things. We change what we do. We change our lives. We go to the lake, you know, just whatever you do. When it's uh, fall, there's certain kind of things to do. And then winter, there's certain kinds of ways that you orient your life. We're used to seasons forming our actions and behavior. And we're used to uh, the celebrations that we do. You know, whether it's um, Thanksgiving, we just went through. I bet you a bunch of you went to see family, you know, and then we're coming up to New Year's as a big celebration in the, in the U.S. You know, we kind of stop oftentimes and think about where's my life going, and we have the New Year's resolutions. You know, sometimes they're just nudges to something that doesn't stick, but, you know, there's at least that sense of what if, right? You ask that question. It's part of, our, it's part of the way that holiday frames us informs us, right? shapes us. Uh, or, or Valentine's Day, it's great. Uh, Mom's Day, how many of you would get beat if you didn't do Mom's Day, right? Um, so these things, these things matter. We plan our vacation time, our family time, our general lives around calendar because it matters. It directs chunks of our walkabout lives, this does in the religious life of the Jews, they had special celebrations that reminded them of their interactions with the living God. So they would celebrate Passover. I mean, they would celebrate it, and they would pretend they were there, and they would stand up and go through the actual motions of, of the meal that they had the night of the Passover as a people, and they would go through these liturgies, like reenacting it, because they knew that, that that event helped them remember they were storied people and would help them think differently about their now and how they should respond and who they were in the context of time. Uh, they had uh, special feast days like the Feast of Booths that reminded them of their wanderings. Hanukkah, which is uh, the time of a, of a national miracle that happened, and they do it every year. And they remember the stories of God. 
the early church leaders said Christians need to do this. They knew the world was calendared. They knew that calendar impacts us as a people. And so they said, we should order our lives and build a calendar around the story of Jesus. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ongoing rule. And out of that, they formed what we now know as Advent, Christmastide, Epiphany, Lent, um, Eastertide, Pentecost, and what's called Ordinary Time, which is not all that ordinary. It talks about the ways in which God has used his people. And for some of us, particularly post-Reformation, that sort of dislodged any church-wide things and privatized faith, to me and my relationship with God, even though that was absolutely essential, even though the Reformation was absolutely essential. You know, sometimes when you react to something, you overreact, and sometimes you lose treasures. One of the joys of sanctuary in a community is that we have been part of a huge kind of movement that's happening all around the world of, of Protestant churches saying, you know, maybe we need to rethink how we deal with the past, and maybe there's gold in them hills over there that we can seize and that might actually help us to be more fully devoted followers of Jesus. And, and in these seasons, the, the, there are ideas and perspectives and hopes and promises that are hoisted up by the very season and, 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 and that end up, if we'll let them impress us and press on us and form us, we're in the season of Advent. For the, this is the start of the new year for Christ followers. <laughs> Advent starts the Christian year. So turn and say Happy New Year to somebody. <laughs> so, so what should this season elicit in us and form in us? What's the point of Advent? Um, two basic ideas. One is that Jesus, there was a promise that Jesus would come. It's a promise that lingered in the imagination of the Jews for thousands of years. And this, the, the, that, we refer to that as the, when he came as the first advent. Advent simply means appearing. So the expectation of advent is that we think about his first appearing. And then the second kind of basic thing we're supposed to get out of it is that he's coming again. <laughs> it's called the Perugia. It's the idea of there's a second Advent coming. And what's interesting in Advent is that we celebrate the first Advent because so much of celebrating it and understanding it prepares us to celebrate the expectation of the second. So the way that Israel longed for the first Advent, we can interpret to how we long for his second Advent. So by going through the first, it prepares us for the second. And so in a very real way, we enter into the longing of what was going on inside the hearts of the Jews. So let me set you, give you a couple of perspectives that I think are helpful for pulling this off more robustly. Because this is, I, I've been doing this for a number of years privately. We've been doing it as a community for a number of years as well. I, I was doing it probably twice as long before that and then as a community. And I have to be honest with you, it was probably last year that's the first time I got captured by it because it's so new to me. I, we just went to France. Gail and I are 40th anniversary this last week. Ooh, ooh. She, you know, all that means is that she's a gracious woman. But anyway, 
lets me live with her. But, but, but we went to, to France, and I don't speak French, you know, bonjour, bonsoir, you know, you know whatever. Or play, or play, whatever, anyway, that stuff. And it's so foreign to me. I'm kind of listening, and it's a little odd, and I'm feeling a little odd. And Gail knows a little more than I do, you know. But, but it was odd. That's the way these seasons have been to me. They're odd. I haven't been formed by them. I didn't grow up with them. They don't have the kind of impact that they will 10 years from now. But I, I remember last year thinking, I, I never really cared about what the Jews thought about the first appearing. And I started reading texts that were in the Advent kind of list of texts, and you can Google them, you can find them. There's Advent, uh, just reading the lectionary, if you're interested. And you read these texts about their longing, and I started getting captured by their longing, feeling like a Jew, aching for help. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And, and, and that kind of notion of being caught in an ancient longing seems so obtuse to my modern sensibilities. And yet, I felt it first time. Um, I think that, that in some way, what, what we have to do is, is ask God to help us lean in. So here's some ideas. What, what set the Jews up for the anticipation of the first advent was their honesty about the pain they were experiencing and witnessing. I, I don't think we evangelicals do that so well. We're sort of pain avoiders. And we want to just focus on what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. As though we don't get to even think, have to think about Golgotha, the cross. We can just move directly to resurrection, right? And... Um, I'm not sure that that's true. I'm not sure that, certainly not with the Jews, they, they stopped at pain and they felt it and they pondered it and they articulated it in all of its nuance back to God. Often called lament. You know it better as complaint. We don't have any problem complaining to each other. We just have a real problem complaining to God, and yet God wants us to. In Exodus 2, it says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help, help. That's such a vulnerable word, help. It means I've come to the limit of my ability. I've come to the point where I have done all I can. I cannot fix this help. Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. There's something very powerful about not skipping over the pain you experience or see around you. To stop, to sit in it, to let it bruise you. Vulnerability. It comes from the word volnus, which means wound. When you're being vulnerable, you're letting the situation wound you. Jesus took the wounds. It's interesting, even with a resurrection body, it's not a completely healed one. He still bears wounds. To be vulnerable means you're open to the wrongs of this world, wounding 
you so that you taste it. This is so un-American, right? It's modeled in the Job story. You remember Job? says, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz and uh, the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite, little guy. That was a Bible joke. <laughs> and so far. <laughs> so good. Zophar the Namathite heard about all the troubles that had come upon um, Job. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and to comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. We want to just cover it up and say, oh, you look fine. So decent to say that. They wept aloud and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads and they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and no one said a word. This is almost completely unknowable to us. Hearing, tasting, watching, embracing the injustices we see. I think Paul nods to this in an odd text in Colossians 1, the need for it in the church. And he says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. I fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. My Theology part of me wants to say, nothing's lacking in Christ's afflictions. But, but what Paul, some theologians want to point out is that he suffered to bring salvation, but that doesn't mean salvation doesn't need to be brought to others. And oftentimes that involves suffering, solidarity with their pain. Not just giving them a fix, saying, oh, it's okay, Jesus is the Lord but saying, oh my goodness, that has to be horrible. And let it touch us so deeply that we feel the hopelessness of it. And somewhere journey, it's not done there, but somewhere we journey to, there is hope because Jesus is Lord. There's an art to embracing pain, to not moving too quickly to a fix, to not run from what ails you to admit that there are things greater than you and to enter those with vulnerability to let them wound you. We need to enter into the reality of pain that's in this world to let it turn us into a mess because pain is real. It's, it's real. The loss of a loved one, the announcement that you have a terminal disease, the way we see people who are innocent, wrongly prejudiced against or judged or hated. When a person who is so radically um, fundamentalist in some religion cutting the head off someone else, that head belonged to a son, a dad, a brother, 
friend. And to just react and just say, well, is to not be present. One of the things I love about Jesus was that he, he was more excited. He seems to be more not excited, animated within the context of pain than he was when the solution came. So when he comes to someone and, he's, and they're blind or whatever, and he would say, well, how long have you been this way? Or what's going on? He's leaning into them. What do you want me to do? He's all engaged. Once the miracle happens, everybody celebrates. That's not when Jesus goes, look, look, a miracle. You need to have me come to your church. That's not what he does. He doesn't celebrate the miracles. In fact, oftentimes he would say, would you just not tell anybody about this? You know why? Because Jesus loved it when people expressed the vulnerability of their pain and he listened and he felt it. He moved toward fix, but not before he lived in it with them. We need to enter the reality of it. I think Walter Brueggemann captures this so well on this little piece. He says, quote, Jesus sees that only those who mourn will be comforted. Only those who embrace the reality of death will receive the new life. Implicit in his statement is that those who do not mourn will not be comforted. For those who do not face the endings will not receive the newness. I used to think it curious, he writes, that when having to quote Scripture on demand, someone would inevitably say, Jesus wept. It's usually done as a gimmick to avoid having to quote a longer passage, but now I understand the depth of that verse. Jesus knew that we numb ones, we numb ones, we who are not very vulnerable. We must learn again that weeping must be real because endings are real and that weeping permits newness. His weeping permits the kingdom to come. Such weeping is a fearful dismantling because it means the end of all machismo. Weeping is something kings rarely do without losing their thrones, yet the loss of thrones is precisely what is called for. End quote. This is the stuff of Advent. At least one of those candles <laughs> is this idea. Staring in the face of pain and injustice is a huge part of what prepares us for hope. Things are not as God intends them to be, and we need to stop and to look at our disappointments and to look at our losses and to look at the unanswered prayers and to look at where we've been offended or where we've been you know, betrayed or where life has not been fair to us or even kind to us. And we need to look at the pain and injustice in the wider world where hungry, starving people are right next to overfed people where the war-torn places where children are victims. Aleppo. Where innocents are unfairly prejudiced against or abused, where industry is willing to destroy the planet for a dollar, where child abuse and domestic abuse pervade the culture. The plight of the unemployed and the plight of the over and overworked. Some of the stories I hear are people that have no life because they're just overworked. All these things make us realize that we live in a broken place. And, and there, this Advent story demands that we should sit in the pain long enough for hopelessness and angst to, to set in. Where we ask, where are you, God? 
Why have you forgotten us? How long, Lord, will things be as they are? Are you really coming? Is this a joke? Is this a tease? Is this hope just a fantasy? And we enter into Psalms that capture this, like Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I crowd by day, but you do not answer. Oh, my goodness. It takes such great faith to utter these kinds of words. I call to you by night. I'm not silent. You don't answer. Oddly, this hopeless angst is what set the Jews up for a hunger of Christ's appearing. The first advent. It will do the same for us. Because somewhere in the midst of that, of staring at pain and feeling its wounds and dancing with the hopelessness, we start to entertain hope. Because hope is the fruit of the Spirit. And somewhere in the midst of that kind of sense of hopelessness and we're getting beyond our ability to, 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 uh, you know, to stay above the water, to tread the water, something comes up, hope. And so even in the text we just read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're so far from me. I cry, you never listen to me. He says, then yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel and you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted and you did deliver them. They cried to you and they were saved. If you, in you they trusted and were not disappointed. See, they moved to hope. It may seem fake at first or even a little like a huge shot in the dark when you start first having a dawned hope. But if you're honest, you know, in the midst of this, you can dance with it. Hosea beautifully says in Hosea 2.15, I will make the valley of Achor a, a door of hope. Acor means the place where things get muddy. It's the place where things are turbid. In other words, they're sort of a turbid is a cloudy, kind of opaqueish, kind of uh, thick liquid that has suspended matter in it. Who knows what that is, right? <laughs> this, is, this is kind of gooey. It's kind of Genesis 1-ish. There was, there was darkness over the surface of the deep, and it seems murky. And what he says is, I will take that place, that place where you feel dejected, that place where you feel like it's nothing's going to happen, to give you the hope that it's actually a door to God's entrance. That's the fruit of adventing well. And this hope starts to mess with you because you start looking past the pain and looking past the injustice to the one who will come to put things right to clear clouds and murkiness that the evil affords. And we think of texts like Revelation 21 that says, when he appears in the second advent, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. doesn't literally mean sea. Actually, a sea has always been a symbol through the, the old covenant, particularly of the unknowable and referring to evil. And it's basically saying there'll be no more evil. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He has come. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be hanging with them. And he will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because the old has passed away. Touchdown, God. 
As hope dawns, we, we recognize that the wrongs will one day be put to right. And then we begin to act like we believe it, that it'll actually happen. We start, this is the Advent process. It's the journey. So you begin to prepare. Because if he's coming, I want to be ready. Which brings us to our text today from the lectionary. John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness in Judea saying, Repent, the kingdom's near. The Advent's close. This is the one whom the prophet Isaiah spoke. He said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Yeah, we're in a wilderness and it sucks. But prepare the way for the Lord. Make, make his path straight. God's coming. <laughs> when Israel faced their pain, they began to hope. And in spite of pain's relentless presence, they began to ask how they could prepare the way for the Lord. This is what we're supposed to do. As the Advent journey continues, we enter into the pain, but then we start daring to hope, and then hope starts blossoming, and then we start moving to, oh, I think he's coming, I think he's coming. What must I do? How must I prepare? We begin to address our own hearts. <laughs> John said it this way, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been known, but we do know this, that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, and when we, when we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope that he's coming in him, purify themselves just as he is pure. What does that mean? You check your heart. You make room for God. You make sure. So part of Advent is making room. When you're starting to think about as we go through the rest of this month, you should be thinking at points in the Advent journey, God, I want to be ready for Christmas. I want to be ready to celebrate the fact that you've appeared. And that's setting me up for the fact you're going to appear. This is not just some spiritual hope that has no effect here. You know, when we embrace the hope of the second advent, when Christ comes to rule as king, where all the wrongs are put to right, and where God is all in all, right? That's the promise. Strangely, even thinking about it, we start to ask, how can I live what is going to be now? How, there's a coming kingdom, the Advent's coming, and all things will be put to right. But how can I start to live now? In light of that kingdom, is there any way for the kingdom to come before it comes? Is there any way for, for the will to be done before, as in heaven, so on earth? If he's coming and I'm preparing, is there any way that that preparation affords us an opportunity to taste of the powers of the world to come. And we begin to long for God's future to become more of our reality today. It changes the way we talk to God. Thy kingdom come. That's God's future, heaven. Let it come to now, earth. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. It turns out that the kingdom of God is that which moves God's future into our present. That's what it is. So when you're asking God, God, bring your kingdom into my life, into my world, into my family, all you're really saying is, you know that future when you come and you make all things right and every tear is gone and all pain is eliminated and all the sea, all evil is gone? Could you give us a sneak peek of that deal right there? I mean, can, you, can I, by my openness to you, can, is there any way that I can create this conduit so that I can get a shunt some future stuff now? 
So we see marks of some wrongs being averted and overcome here and now. We see that we can defeat injustice and overcome pain here and now. While we wait for the second appearing, where it will be done away fully and all tears will be wiped away, we can start to see it now. And we are, we start to experience like you will experience here. We will experience here in Tulsa about February. What are those little guys that peek out? Those daffodils. They come out and they say, hey, springs are coming. Spring. I'm a prophet. Springs are coming. Now you know and I know that those little daffodils, it doesn't mean spring has come. There's usually a good bit of winter left, right? But they're a sign. See, so, so we obey Jesus' command to comfort the mourners as a sign that one day they will all be comforted. We, we care for the sick. We confront our prejudices. We clothe the naked. We free captives. We love and care for those we encounter. We care for creation. We, we treat people with dignity. We value life. We live ethically or rightly. Why? Because we're the daffodil people. <laughs> and we do this, as we do this, our expectation of his appearing increases because we believe in his coming with more fervor than ever. We don't know when. Please understand that. Nobody knows when. If you write a book about when, how do I say this kindly? You're an idiot. (laughs) And you know what? It doesn't really matter when. Our job is clear. We bring daffodils to people. But it is that expectation that brings us to Christmas. (laughs) When we walk into... Christmas Eve and walk into Christmas Day. This year we're doing both, you know, because we're really religious around here. You know, Christmas ought to be about Christmas. For us. I used to say, well, every day is Christmas, which is really to say nothing is Christmas. This happened in real time, in real place. It should be celebrated in real time, in a real place. But that expectation prepares us for what they longed for for thousands of years. It finally came. And if you stand on the precipice of Christmas Eve here with us or come Sunday morning to Christmas Day, you ought to come with the absolute joy that he has come and with the anticipation that one day you'll be able to look at me and I'll look at you and you look at your family, look at your friends and say, look, the one we believed in, he's come. This is really true. Right? (laughs) And Luke describes it. I'm done here. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were freaked. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior an appearing has come, has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, I love suddenly, I'm a Pentecostal. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, 
praising God and saying, glory to God. Say it with us. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And it happened. His first appearance happened. He came. He will come again. The New Testament ends with these words. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen, John writes. Come, Lord Jesus. Advent, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.